Gresham College presents Where Have All the Financial Risks Gone? by Avinash Persaud, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Thank you very much, Bill, for setting the scene so expertly. I don't know how many of you uh, know uh, Bill Martin. He is one of the leading practitioners in risk management in financial markets today. He was recently elected chairman of GARP, the Global Association of Risk Professionals, which is a thousand-strong body uh, of buy-side and sell-side uh, risk managers. 30,000. 30,000. And I think you know, one, of the, uh, one of the hallmarks of, of Bill's success, in fact, is um, he's extremely open to new ideas. And I have to say, he's not always agreed with my own ideas, but he's always been encouraging. And I want to thank you very much for that. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Here's a puzzle. We're in a period of heightened economic risks. At almost $900 billion, loans in default or distress around the world are at a record level, having climbed about 20% this year alone. And this isn't the result of just a few headline-grabbing defaults like Argentina or Enron. It, corporate difficulties are as widespread today as they are deep. The number of issuers defaulting on their debts rose by 65% to 220 last year. Another record. And equity markets have been apoplectic. On average, they're down 50% from March 2000. And this a drop, half of this drop, has occurred this year. We have to go back to 1932 to find three consecutive years of those kinds of losses. And it's been a knuckle-whitening ride downhill in equity markets, with equity markets notching up record levels of volatility this year. And yet, despite all these records, despite all the spilt blood in the boardrooms, despite a less secure, a less certain world, banks in general, and U.S. banks in particular, are healthy. In the U.S., bad loans represent just 10% of bank equity, one of the lowest levels of bad debt for decades. Non-performing loans are significantly less than a reserve set aside for bad loans. And this compares very favorably with the last two decades when the opposite was the case. With a few exceptions, most notably in Japan and Argentina. The dichotomy of economic distress on one hand and a banking system in rude health on the other is a common feature in most developed countries. During this economic and financial cycle outside Japan, no major bank has yet been bailed out. Not yet, anyway. Bank supervisors and central bankers have put this down to three things. First, the collapse of computing costs, which has allowed the better collection and manipulation of data on loans and borrowers. Better data should lead to better risk control. Second, the development of new financial instruments, the kind of instruments that Bill talked about earlier, asset-backed securities, credit derivatives. These can be used to hedge risks, and third, or third, the central bankers and supervisors talk about their diligence in keeping risks under control, supported by the Basel I Capital Accord established in 1988. 
In short, what they're saying is there are fewer risks in banks because there's better risk management. It's a comforting thought, perhaps too comforting. These forces that they talk about have certainly had impact. Banking has been positively transformed by the collapse of computing costs. Bankers are loyal members of the cult of quant. Banks today are the biggest employers of mathematicians, of modelers and physicists. New financial instruments have enabled banks to pass on risks to others. And in a number of ways, and in many instances, most notably through credit derivatives, the risks to banks of making loans have been sliced up, securitized, and sold on. The mirror image of the decline of risks on banks' balance sheets has been the explosion of the credit derivatives market. According to the September survey of the BBA, the British Bankers Association, the global credit derivatives market has grown from a notional value of contracts in 1997 of $200 billion to just shy of $2,000 billion this year, $2 trillion. That's a tenfold increase in just five years. And the BBA members are predicting this rate of growth will be sustained for the next couple of years. Which would mean that by 2005, the credit derivatives market will be as large as the annual amount of bank lending throughout the whole of the United States. And that from a market that hardly existed seven years ago. Banks are safer. They've sold on a significant slice of their risks. But this begs the question whether our regulators are too narrowly focused on banks. Drafting the new capital accord has consumed vast amounts of energy, time, and efforts from our regulators in recent years. And yet, it's primarily about banks and not about how risks move around between banks and other financial institutions. Today, with a generally more interconnected financial market, financial system, one that's more fluid, where banks are deliberately shifting risks to other players, I would say this focus on banks is out of date. Worse, it could be leading to a, it could be leading to a misleading view of the robustness of the financial system. If risks have shifted from banks, where have they gone? Has this reduced systemic risks or merely moved the location of the trigger points? Are these risks in a better place or worse place than before? What are the wider implications for financial markets and economies of this risk transfer? These are the intriguing questions posed to me many months ago by my learned friend uh, John Olkay, who I think is at the back there. And the answers uh, are the focus of this evening's lecture. Financial innovation has enabled risks to be sliced and diced, and for these slices to be separated and traded separately on their own. Or, if you like, joined up with other slices and traded together. By itself, this new ability to mix and match risks is a positive development. Those who can best arrange a loan because of historical relationships with clients, because of local expertise, say, may not always be the best people to carry a loan on their books, on their balance sheets. Today, 
by selling the slices of it alone they do not want to those that do, originators of a loan can arrange more loans than they may otherwise do because of constraints from the balance sheet, because of capital adequacy ratios or internal risk management systems. This suggests there will be a greater specialism in risk, a more efficient allocation of the individual components of risk, and all that suggests there will be more risk-taking. If these risks are better matched and spread, the financial system could end up with more risk-taking and yet less systemic risks. My father, Professor Bishnodat Pasur, taught me early on in my economics training that individual risk-taking is the lifeblood of economic dynamism, but that this can be quickly snuffed out by systemic crises. More individual risk-taking, yet less systemic risks, but that will be very desirable indeed. I fear we have missed that particular utopia, partly because the main motivation for the growth of credit derivatives has had very little to do with the spreading of risks. In the 1990s, the average yield on a G7 government bond was 6%. Insurance companies felt at ease, therefore, selling financial products like endowments, annuities, life insurance, products that required the insurance company to earn about 6% per year. But proving that you really can have too much of a good thing, greater international trade, more independent central bankers, and the arrival of EMU have all combined to lower inflation, lower interest rates, and lower government bond yields. So much so that by the late 1990s, G7 government bonds were yielding less than 4%. And insurance companies could no longer meet their liabilities by investing in these low-risk assets. To obtain the higher yields, they collectively and inevitably moved up along the risk spectrum. From 1998, their holdings of government bonds fell, their holdings of corporate risk through corporate bonds, credit derivatives, equities, rose dramatically. This chart focuses on insurers' equity holdings. And while the line is flattered by the rise in equity prices, the underlying trend is unmistakable. I must thank Michael Metcalf, indeed, and Brian Garvey for pointing out this development to me about 12 months ago. Seen in this light, the explosion of credit derivatives looks less like an exercise in sound risk management and more a yearning for yield by insurance companies. And I don't need to tell you that whenever financial institutions go after risk together as a group, regulators should sit up. This next chart shows the breakdown of who is paying for default protection, the blue bar, and who is receiving income for selling default protection, the green bars. And you can see that it's the banks and the security houses that are net buying protection, the blue bars above the green bar. And it's the insurance companies and pension funds around the world that are not net selling protection and receiving premium. I must at this point uh, thank Chris McCoy for finding, help, helping me analyze and present some of this data 
which, uh, as you can imagine, is not very easy data to find in general. Now, I'm not sure how often, if ever, someone has attempted to explain a credit default swap in public. But I would like to try briefly so that we can come to focus on the key principles with uh, some greater understanding. Now, like most things in life, credit default swaps are actually much simpler than they sound. It's just that the profession, my profession, loves to sound horribly complicated so that you'd want to give us some money to give you expert advice and opinion later on. Indeed, credit default swaps are not very different from the protection you can buy, and you probably do, for your credit card balance in case you lose your job or become ill. It's the same, similar sort of principles. Let's take an example of a five-year loan from Peabody Bank to Global Telecoms Limited, and where later Peabody Bank buys protection for this loan from Europe Re, a reinsurance company. Peabody hopes to receive a monthly interest payment from Global Telecoms and a final repayment of the loan in five years' time. There is, of course, a risk that Global Telecoms goes bust and fails to repay the loan. The yield that Peabody Bank earns on this loan, like most loans, can be broken down into two, into a risk-free part, the risk-free yield, and an extra premium. This premium principally relates to both the probability of default and the, and the Peabody Bank's own risk aversion. This premium relates also to the price of a credit default swap. In a credit default swap, Peabody Bank buys protection from Europe Re, protection against a default by Global Telecoms, the company it's lent its money to. In the event of default, Europe Re agrees to pay Peabody Bank an amount equal to the loan. And in return for shedding the risk of default, Peabody Bank has to pay Europe Re a price that's often referred to as the premium. That's, that's it. Simple as that. This is neat and clever. But let me focus on a more subtle and yet powerful transformation that's actually occurred at the same time. When it was only on Peabody's balance sheet, the probability of default, the risk of the loan, was assessed by Peabody's loan officers with private data, data acquired from their long banking relationship with the company, data about developments in the sector, about changes in the company and the management. And this assessment of the risk of that loan was largely separate from daily movements in Global Telecom's share price. But the person who now has those risks, Europe Re, the insurer, does not have a long-term relationship with Global Telecoms. Its primary interest in the premium it, is the premium it can earn on Global Telecoms default swap today and perhaps another company in another sector tomorrow. When the credit default swap is on Europe Re's balance sheet, it is treated as an asset whose value is estimated using public data. Daily movements in global telecoms, equity, and bond prices feed directly into the estimation of risk and default. As the bond and equity prices fall, the estimated probability of default rises, and Europe Re has to hedge its credit default swap. It could do so by selling bonds and equities. Selling bonds makes sense. 
if there's a liquid bond market, but it will drive bond prices down. It would directly, the selling of the bonds would directly increase the estimate of the probability of the default. It's a vicious cycle. Selling equities is one step removed and insurers have ended up shorting equities. But there really is no escape with this approach. As long as we're talking about markets that are not perfectly liquid, if you use publicly available data to assess a risk and then try to hedge those risks using the public markets, you will always be chasing your tail. You'll be selling when the market is falling and buying when the market is rising. This is the portfolio insurance problem which led to such volatility in the 1987 stock market crash. The only way to hedge risks so that the hedge does not undermine your own position is to lay it off in some distant, unconnected market. And that's exactly what insurance is supposed to be about. Of course, it's not easy to find the offsets for risk that move with the economic cycle. To have done so would have limited the demand for credit default swaps and the amount of premium insurers would have earned. Yield-hungry insurance companies instead adopted a more convenient, self-serving approach. That credit default swaps were an asset with a toxic slice attached that could be valued and hedged in the liquid secondary markets. The key point here, to summarize all that I've just said so far about credit default swaps, is that the moving of risks off bank balance sheets onto the assets of insurance companies has led to a greater convergence in the way risks are valued, traded, managed, and hedged. Instead of there being two views of risk, one held by the loan officers and one held by the equity markets, now there's only one view. And this convergence has resulted in a concentration of risks across time and markets. As markets fall, Estimated risks rise, insurers respond by selling markets still further. And in turn, this has led to points of extreme volatility and dislocation. Banks are safer than in previous recessions. But equities are far more volatile, as this chart of the volatility of the S&P 500 index shows. The lesson is that risks are not reduced by being spread between one or two institutions, if they are treated in the same way. Diversity in behavior, not in nameplates, is key to the spread of risks across a financial system. So risks are not better spread. They have just moved on. But perhaps they've moved to a better place. What is wrong with a bit of equity volatility? Well, there are three reasons why we should be worried about this. Even volatility markets, which are big. First, equity markets have direct economic impact. Their performance influences the cost of capital. When the cost of capital is volatile, this is an obstacle to investing at the right time. Second, extreme volatility adversely impacts business confidence, which dents those animal spirits and the desire for investment in the first place. This has played an important part in the weakness of the economies in the Eurozone, where the economies start off from not having the same imbalances as in the United States, 
but where today there is now an equal dearth of business confidence. Third, the costs of this additional volatility are increasingly falling on pensioners, a group not particularly well equipped to deal with financial dislocation. And this is not simply because of poor investment decisions. You can never fully protect everyone for the misfortunes of their own poor judgment. But the point is, given the choice, retail investors will always, will always have too much invested in the equity market. And this is a feature that's going to be very important for the development of capital flows in the long run. Let me give you the reasons for this. The reason is that retail investors, you and I, are liquidity constrained. By and large, you and I cannot walk into a bank today and borrow against our future income. Without putting up collateral, the bank will demand to have a, a share in our house or our car. Unless, of course, talking about very small amounts of money. The only way individuals can borrow seriously against the future is to leverage their pension. In other words, to invest in riskier assets in the hope that these assets would perform so well to such an extent that you'll be able to get the same pension by putting in less money and putting in less contributions. And the way to leverage your pension is to put too many equities or low-grade corporate bonds in your portfolio. And that is what people do. This is why the asset allocation of professionally managed defined benefit pension funds on the left-hand side here often has a lower, much lower equity content than that of funds where individuals choose how much to invest and where to invest in. Whenever they're given the choice, retail investors leverage their pension with too much equity. Given this built-in proclivity, and given the trend towards less state provision of pensions, more private choice in pension provision, retail investors will be increasingly exposed to the volatility of the equity markets. When risks surface today, the banks don't get into trouble, but employee pensions do. Is that a better place for risks to be? At the very least, extreme volatility and risks in equity markets will be a disincentive for individuals to save more themselves and to become less dependent on the state. Let's turn briefly to the wider market implications of what I have discussed. Banks have shifted credit risk to insurance companies, which have hedged themselves by going short the equity markets, which has significantly increased their volatility. There is also some very important and interesting cross-border elements to this story. The credit derivatives market affects European institutions and European markets far more than those in the US. This is because in the US, corporate bonds and equities, these markets are so much more developed, larger and liquid. So US companies rely less on bank lending than European companies do. I was surprised to see that bank lending in Europe is twice the amount of bank lending in the US. And that's for economies that are largely similar in their size. And European institutions are the world's big insurance and reinsurance players, as this table at the bottom here with the global revenues of these corporations shows. Both the supply and demand 
of this market are driven by developments in Europe. One of the reasons why U.S. banks look particularly safe today, despite the concentration of corporate downgrades in the U.S., is that U.S. banks have transferred some of their credit risks to European reinsurance companies. If I'm right, the credit derivatives that have been hedged in part in the equity markets, if we're right about this, equity volatility will be markedly higher than normal. If I'm right that this is more of a European phenomenon, then European equity markets will be weaker and more volatile than U.S. markets, even though the fundamentals look worse in the U.S., that there have been bigger downward revisions to U.S. growth and U.S. earnings. Moreover, all of these differences would only occur after the market had fallen some way as it takes significant price declines to push up default risk. All this is, in fact, observable. The chart on the left-hand side shows the performance of the U.S. equity market, the blue line, the green bar being the German equity market, with the U.S. market significantly outperforming despite the significant uh, downward revision to U.S. growth expectations. And on the right-hand side, a surprising development where European equity volatility is now significantly higher than U.S. equity vol. The credit derivatives market, and its use by insurance companies, is the glue which connects the surprising safety of U.S. banks with the surprising volatility of European equities and the surprising weakness of European bank assurance groups. It's very hard otherwise to make sense of those developments. My analysis suggests there will be some symmetry. If the equity markets anticipate economic recovery and turn around, insurance companies' hedges for their corporate default swaps will hurt, be they explicit or implicitly short equity positions. And there'll be a scramble to remove these hedges, adding further upward pressure to the market. Underperformance on the way down will be met by outperformance on the way up and sustained levels of volatility. The whole process will sap insurance companies' appetite for credit default swaps. They bought these instruments at tight prices, and then the risks appeared to rise as equities fell. Their hedging pushed the market against them, and now they are largely fully hedged. The eventual recovery in the equity markets will cost them again. These losses will refocus the market participants on the risk management uses of credit derivatives and not their risk-taking ones. And that's probably no bad thing. But it does suggest that the credit derivatives market will not continue to grow as rapidly as those in the BBA survey have hoped. Also, less enthusiasm on the part of insurers to own credit risks will reduce the capacity of banks to lend. Unless the banks decide to put more risk on their own balance sheets again, and they may do so at some point, but unlikely today with the economy so weak, this suggests that European banks will be in risk reduction mode and unwilling to increase their lending. The worrying thing is that this scenario makes Europe look more and more like Japan. With its cautious monetary policy, a constrained fiscal policy, and now, to top it all, risk-averse bankers. There are a number of key differences, not least the ECB's focus on broad monetary growth 
and inflation that may stop it falling into a deflationary trap. But it's certainly the case that the poor experience from the transfer of risks from US and European banks to European insurance companies adds to the risk of deflation in Europe. Deflation does not bode well for real assets, like equities. But it does support nominal assets, like bonds and currency. This chart looks at the performance of Japanese asset markets since inflation turned negative in Japan a few years back. With equity markets performing poorly, the currency doing surprisingly well, and bonds outperforming. Deflation is good for nominal assets, something that's often forgotten. If Europe falls into deflation, this is good for the euro, good for bonds, bad for European equities. What should regulators do? In the case of pensioners, there needs to be some disincentive to gamble with your pension. It may be something like a minimum funding requirement, something that maybe that had made more sense than we thought initially when we had it, and maybe it should be reintroduced. Certainly for those instruments that receive preferential tax treatment. What about insurance companies? It is tempting when looking at the folly of what insurance companies have been up to to consider what regulation could be adopted to avoid this, avoid this reckless pursuit of yield in the future. But I suspect that going forward, the best discipline will be provided by the salutary experience of the losses, which have led to more than a few boardroom reshuffles lately. In insurance, as in life, fear of failure often provides the strongest disciplines and motivation. There is a danger, however, that new regulation of insurance companies actually promotes the behavior we've been talking about. The essential problem, remember, is that insurance companies were taking on risks which they could not self-insure, too much risks. They were valuing these risks using public data and trying to hedge any shift in these risks using the public markets. It is this which leads to the position of where you're selling when markets are going down and buying when markets are going up. The solution is that insurance companies should only take on default swaps if they can either self-insure or if they can hedge their risks away from daily changes in market prices. A simple way to do this is to have an approach to risk management that is less sensitive to daily price changes, but instead considers non-price measures of risk or price changes over long periods of time, such as a year or more. This would lead to some very different behavior. My final point, and this chart I borrowed from one of our colleagues at State Street, from Mark Kritzman. It looks at the portfolio of Japanese bonds and equities over a 10-year horizon the likely view of how this portfolio will behave. It's based on the past performance of these markets, the probability that at the end of 10 years, this portfolio will lose 10%. The probability that this portfolio of Japanese bonds and equities will lose 10% at the end of the 10 years is just 5%, the end of horizon. But what is the probability that this portfolio will lose 10% at any point in time between now and the next 10 years? That's 50%. The difference between these two numbers is that markets fall, but they often recover. Concern only about end of horizon significantly reduces the probability of a 10% loss. Arguably, an insurance company with a 10-year liability 
should be interested with the end of period, with the end of horizon probability. But actually, they behave as if they're worried about the one on the right. By using daily price changes, they end up hedging against an event that will occur 5% of the time. They end up hedging 50% of the time, which means it's, they are selling when markets are going down, buying when markets are going up, and doing so far more often than they need to. A credit default swap is not necessarily a long-term liability, but nor is it a daily liability that is best characterized by daily prices. The point about this example, the point of this example, is that risks will be better spread across the financial system. Volatility in the equity markets would be lower. Profitability of insurance companies would be higher, and hopefully our insurance premiums would be lower, if insurance companies treated longer-term liabilities as longer-term liabilities and did not adopt the same risk management process as someone managing daily, the daily liability like a bank. And I labor that point because this, in fact, is a thrust of the very latest current approach to insurance company regulation, that they should manage risks just the way everyone else does. Let me conclude. Despite record corporate bankruptcies, weak economies, and a market meltdown, banks are generally safe. Regulators and central banks are patting themselves on the back. But risks are not better spread. They have just shifted from banks to insurance companies and from there to equity markets. It is not clear to me that this is a better place for those risks to be. With public provision of pensions falling, individuals are increasingly exposed to the equity markets. Now when major firms fail, it's not the banks that come crashing down, but your pension. Is that really better? Banks may be safer, but the financial system is not, especially from the perspective of individual investors perhaps less able to protect themselves against financial dislocation. This certainly will not encourage them to be saving more for their future. There is an interesting cross-border dimension to all of what we've talked about today. London is the preeminent trading center for the global credit derivatives market. About 50% of all credit derivatives are traded here. European reinsurance companies have been the biggest sellers of credit derivatives, and US banks some of the biggest buyers. In part, US risks have been shifted to Europe. This has made US banks safer than otherwise, European bank assurance groups weaker, and European equity markets much more volatile. This will undermine the capacity and appetite for bank lending in Europe, which draws some unhappy parallels with developments in Japan. It certainly adds to the risk of deflation in Europe, which will cap the bounce in European equities, but will support European bonds and currencies. One of the key lessons to be learned from this experience is that in today's fluid financial markets, the spread of risks has less to do with exactly who owns the risk and more to do with how risks are treated. The more risks are valued, traded, hedged, and managed in the same way, in the same markets, the greater systemic risks will be.
as they turn their attention to insurance markets, the current mantra of regulators that we need high and common standards could not be more dangerous. We need high and uncommon standards. We need diversity. If the transfer of risks from banks to insurance companies is to make the system safer, we need insurance companies to behave like insurance companies, to match long-term liabilities with long-term assets, to value them like long-term assets, and to manage them like long-term assets. Thank you very much indeed. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.com dot ac dot uk